We're going to call the uh, meeting to order of the subcommittee. Thank you all for coming today. A uh, couple of things uh, to start with. Number one, we're going to have votes starting at 3 o'clock. We'll deal with that when we have to deal with that. Uh, second thing is, is uh, this committee doesn't meet uh, as frequently as many other committees, but uh, the primary reason being that the issues that we deal with are of sufficient magnitude that they're generally dealt with uh, by the whole committee. So the, uh, either this committee wraps itself around the other or vice versa, depending upon how you look at it. But uh, in any event, we, we really, really deem that, uh, that this was an appropriate uh, subject, however, uh, for this uh, subcommittee. Uh, obviously, uh, the uh, uh, complexity of uh, dealing with the issues uh, on North Africa are certainly uh, uh, worthy of our consideration. Uh, thus, the meeting today, and we have a, a very good panel to help us uh, deal with these people who deal with this all the time. So uh, thank you all for being here, Ambassador Sales. Uh, I know your travel uh, schedule uh, has been quite robust, and as a result of that, uh, I appreciate you accommodating us uh, to be actually, actually be able to be here yourself today. Uh, North Africa is an important region for the United States as well as transatlantic security. Several years ago, we watched the Arab Spring begin in Tunisia and then spread across the Middle East. People in the region wanted a better life and were clearly tired with the slow pace of change. Despite their aspirations, the pace of change has not met their expectations. Today, we still see weak institutions and strong leaders make change difficult. And in the process, safe havens continue to exist for terrorists. The region, especially Morocco and Tunisia, uh, has seen a significant number of their people, of their citizens, join ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Now these fighters pose a threat as they return to the region, to their own uh, homeland. Uh, Morocco and Algeria have strong institutions to collaborate with the United States. In Tunisia, the government is stable but still fragile and requires a commitment to help build their institutional capacity. ISIS's increased presence in the Sinai is troubling, to say the least. The attacks against Coptic Christians and Muslims, like the recent uh, mosque attack, highlight how large a threat ISIS still is in the region. In Libya, we see rival factions and weak institutions undermine the capacity to govern the country, leaving few partners to work with the fight against terrorism. Uh, the byproduct is freedom of movement for terrorists to plan, train, and finance their activities. At the same time, countries around the region are competing for influence and power rather than helping the domestic leaders build capacity and effective institutions to govern their own country. This only undermines counterterrorism efforts. However, this challenge is not something that can be confronted solely through military force. Targeted U.S. airstrikes have been helpful, but political resolution in Libya is vital to building long-term partner capacity and actually rooting out terrorism. If factionalism persists, we will never get beyond military action. Also, I worry that the broader region is becoming not just a training ground for terrorist camps, but a base of operation as deeper affiliations with international terrorist organizations are growing. This has profound implications for European security as smuggling and extremists themselves cross the Mediterranean into Europe. There is an opportunity for the United States to partner with our allies in Europe 
and the Gulf to help bring more stability to the region, and I look forward to hearing our witnesses help explain how we can accomplish this challenging task. Uh, I know that uh, Senator Keene uh, wants badly to join us today, but like all of us, he has challenges and he is uh, going to be here, so we will look forward to his opening statement uh, when he gets uh, here. In any event, I want to uh, thank uh, uh, both uh, Ambassador Sales uh, and uh, uh, Ambassador uh, Palaszczuk and ask you uh, to honor us with, uh, with what uh, you have to say, and we'll start uh, with uh, Ambassador Sales. Well, thank you very much, Chairman Risch, uh, Ranking Member Kane, and other members of the subcommittee. I'd like to thank you for inviting me to discuss U.S. counterterrorism sure. efforts uh, in North Africa. And Mr. Chairman, should I pause now uh, to hear from Senator Kane? Very good. Well, I'd like to thank you for holding this hearing, and um, I'm especially grateful to you for scheduling this hearing at a time that allows me to personally participate. Um, our top priority in the region is to prevent terrorist groups from threatening the United States by denying them the ability to operate in the continent's vast undergoverned spaces. Terrorists who enjoy safe haven are capable of exporting violence around the world, striking us here at home, and striking the homelands of our closest allies. We saw Al-Qaeda do this from Afghanistan in the 1990s through 9-11. More recently, we also saw ISIS do the same thing from its false caliphate in Syria and Iraq. This is the reason why we're helping the sometimes fragile states of North Africa build their counterterrorism capacity. We want to develop their capabilities to the point where they're able to defend themselves without relying on assistance from the United States. Today, ISIS is on the ropes in Syria and Iraq, but significant challenges remain. ISIS networks in North Africa, as you've already mentioned, Senator. Foreign terrorist fighters from the region who've traveled to the war zone and now seek to return home. Al-Qaeda affiliates like AQIM. Today, I'm going to highlight several areas where the CT Bureau and the rest of the State Department have been working with our North African partners to address these and other problems. First, law enforcement and criminal justice. Strong, stable, and responsive governments are an important bulwark against terrorism. That's why we help partner nations develop appropriate legal frameworks to effectively prosecute terrorist offenders. In particular, we strengthen our partners' ability to investigate, prosecute, and adjudicate terrorism-related crimes. We also help them build crisis response teams that are capable of responding to terrorist attacks in real time. Second, border security. Terrorists exploit long, porous borders in remote and loosely governed parts of the continent. An important part of the solution to that problem is information sharing. For that reason, we've worked with our interagency partners to conclude HSPD-6 agreements with dozens of countries, including a number in North Africa. As you know, HSPD-6 calls for information sharing about known and suspected terrorists. We've also worked to stem the flow of FTFs across international borders. This means getting our partners to use Interpol's stolen and lost travel document database and other resources. We're also expanding the Pisces program. That rather elaborate acronym is Personal Identification <coughs> Secure Comparison and Evaluation System. Um, it's a mouthful, but what it does do is provide state-of-the-art border screening systems to 24 countries. A third important CT tool is designations. 
The State Department has listed a number of foreign terrorist organizations that are active in North Africa. Examples include ISIS-Sinai, ISIS-Libya, AQIM, and Ansar al-Sharia. Using these designations enables us to help cut off the financial flows that are the lifeblood of these organizations. Fourth, we work to counter radicalization in a way that's tailored to each North African country's unique circumstances. It isn't enough to stop FTS from traveling to the war zone or remove them from the battlefield. This is a battle of ideas, and we also need to delegitimize the radical ideology that attracts them in the first place and prevent them from getting into terrorist pipelines. Finally, looking beyond Foggy Bottom, the Department of Defense continues to advance U.S. counterterrorism priorities in North Africa by taking the fight directly to the enemy. On October 29th, our soldiers captured Mustafa al-Imam, who was allegedly involved in the 2012 Benghazi terrorist attacks. We've transferred him to the United States for prosecution, where he will face justice for his alleged crimes. We continue to investigate the, uh, the perpetrators of this attack, and we look forward to bringing them to justice. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, thank you again for holding this hearing. I'll now turn the floor over to Ambassador Palashik, who will discuss some of the political and diplomatic aspects of our efforts in the region. Thank you. Ambassador Palashik. Uh, Chairman Rich, Ranking Member Kane, Subcommittee Pardon me. Chairman Rich, Ranking Member Kane, Subcommittee Members, thank you for the invitation to appear before you. As Ambassador Sales just described, ISIS and other terrorist groups have been significantly degraded in this region. Nevertheless, these groups continue to capitalize on political friction, economic frustrations, and regional fragmentation in their quest to destabilize our partners and threaten attacks against U.S. interests. As an integral component of our counterterrorism efforts, the United States is working closely with our partners in North Africa as they seek to advance political reconciliation, promote economic reforms, and strengthen civil society to ensure a robust and comprehensive approach to our collective threats. I'd like to speak briefly about our specific efforts and also would like to submit a statement for the record. Turning first to Libya, where the ongoing political crisis continues to impact security throughout the region, Libya must first overcome the current political impasse to achieve lasting stability. That is why the administration recently hosted Prime Minister El Saraj in Washington to reaffirm support for his government of national accord and UN-facilitated efforts to mediate a political settlement. We urge all Libyans to engage constructively in the UN process and pursue their ambitions through the ballot box. Any attempt to impose a military solution will only fuel civil conflict, providing ISIS and Al-Qaeda with opportunities to use Libya as a base to threaten the US and our allies. The potential for greater instability in Libya is of particular concern to Tunisia. As Tunisia consolidates its democratic transition, economic stagnation and social marginalization have prompted approximately 4,000 Tunisians to join ISIS. US engagement is focused on supporting Tunisia's efforts to enhance its ability to respond to this threat bolstering Tunisian judicial capacity to investigate and prosecute those involved in terrorism, and tackling the root causes of the foreign terrorist fighter phenomenon. In Tunis last month, the Deputy Secretary of State spoke directly with Tunisian leaders about the country's economic challenges, pledging U.S. support, but urging quicker implementation of reforms that are vital to ensuring all Tunisians 
are able to participate fully in political and economic life. Algeria, where I recently served as U.S. Ambassador, has witnessed a dramatic improvement in its political, economic, and security situation since the 1990s. Today, Algeria stands as a highly effective counterterrorism partner, able to deny terrorists safe haven within its borders and working to build the capacity of its more fragile neighbors. A measured but effective political and economic liberalization in recent years has undergirded this transformation. Morocco continues to distinguish itself as a capable security partner and regional leader, particularly with respect to countering violent extremism and radicalization on the African continent. Morocco is a net exporter of security. For example, in close cooperation with us, Moroccan personnel have trained counterterrorism forces in Senegal and Chad, while Morocco has lent powerful support to, to the G5 Sahel to strengthen the regional response to terrorism. Egypt remains an important strategic partner. Its most pressing internal security challenge is the ISIS affiliate in Northern Sinai. Let me pause to reiterate the US government's condolences for the horrifying November 24th mosque attack, which killed over 300 Egyptians. ISIS has also targeted Egypt's Christians via appalling church bombings and attacks on pilgrims. Other terrorist groups have claimed attacks on Egyptian officials and police outside the Sinai. For Cairo, instability in Libya and the potential for ISIS to regroup there represent critical threats to Egyptian security. We remain committed to supporting Egypt's efforts to defeat terrorist threats. Building on decades of strong security ties, we are seeing growing counterterrorism cooperation and continuing strong military-to-military -military efforts across a range of programs. Turning briefly to economic stability, President Assisi has taken bold and necessary steps on reform, and the economy is improving, albeit slowly. Finally, we will continue to emphasize the importance of a comprehensive approach to counterterrorism that protects and minimizes damage to civilians. We've been engaged in a frank, but as yet inconclusive dialogue about Egypt's restrictive NGO law and Egypt's convictions of employees of US NGOs. We have raised, and will continue to raise at senior levels, our concerns about policies that challenge democratic governance, and we continue to stress the fundamental importance of respect for human rights, civil liberties, and the need for a robust civil society. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Kane, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you very much. That was a really good, comprehensive overview, and um, obviously we've got the right panel here to, to delve into this. So with that, uh, Mr. Ranking Member, did you, uh, Tim, did you want to make a statement? Or did you I think I'll just... I'm going to reserve my question, so I'll, I'll yield I'll uh, to in. you at this... Uh, I apologize for being a few minutes late, but it, it spared you hearing an opening statement from me, so that's, there is some good news. <laughs> I, let me just jump right into questions. Um, one of the things that I'm always puzzled by, and I think you can each offer some insight into this, is... There are relatively stable countries in North Africa that we work closely with Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, and yet a large number of the foreign fighters that go to fight with ISIS come from these nations. Why is that the case? Why have they been such producers of foreign fighters who go to fight with ISIS? Well, thanks for the question, Senator, and uh, let me say it's good to see you again. Um, I think the answer to that question is very uh, 
context specific. I think um, different countries have experienced radicalization um, and the migration of foreign terrorist fighters for, for different reasons. So um, Tunisia, for instance, has sent uh, anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000 foreign terrorist fighters from North Africa into Syria and Iraq. Uh, Morocco, by contrast, has sent about 1,700. Uh, the numbers for some of the other countries are substantially lower. Um, in the case of Algeria, which uh, exhibits a very low incidence of uh, foreign terrorist fighter movements. I think part of the reason for their relative success in the region is because of their long history throughout the 1990s uh, of combating Islamist violence in Algeria. Um, I think that that experience has helped Algeria create governmental institutions and civil society institutions that help their population, that sort of inoculate their population against uh, the siren song of, of radicalism. Um, of course, not perfectly. Um, all, all countries mm -hmm. could stand to do a, a better job. But I think that experience from the 1990s has been one factor that has contributed to the relatively uh, uh, advantageous situation it, when it comes to foreign terrorist fighters, sir. Let me ask a, a second question. The president's announcement today about Jerusalem, the, uh, this, is a, you know, this body has long recognized the reality of Jerusalem as the center of government for Israel, but the reason that presidents have not taken this step before now has not been because of that reality. It's been because of advice by allies in the region, including allies of Israel like Jordan, uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, who have basically said if the U.S. weighs in on that, it may well lead to extremism in the region that could be dangerous either to Israel or potentially dangerous to the U.S., U.S. embassy personnel, et cetera. Is that a concern that we should be uh, taking seriously following this announcement? And what is the State Department doing to try to protect our embassy personnel uh, in the region? Well, Senator, I, I hope that um, you've had a chance to uh, listen to the President's uh, statement. I know you all have very busy schedules. I was just uh, uh, reading very quickly the, the transcript myself to make sure that I had the latest information. Um, I, I think we need to look at, at a few issues here. First, as you said, the, the uh, President recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and its seat of government. Um, but in, the, in his remarks, the President also said a number of important things about final status. Um, and stressed that the specific boundaries of Israeli sovereignty in Jerusalem are subject to final status negotiations between the parties. Um, the United States has not taken a position on boundaries or borders. Uh, we realize that. Ma'am, if I could just interrupt, because I, I don't want to run over time. I, I have the statement here, and it does include that. The, the piece I'm particularly interested in is one aspect of the president's statement. Departments, and this is a summary, Departments and agencies have implemented a robust security plan to ensure the safety of our citizens and assets in the region. That suggests that the administration was aware that this could have some negative security consequences for embassy personnel and others in the region prior to making the announcement. What is the State Department doing? What are these robust security plans? What's the State Department doing to try to protect our people uh, in the event that uh, th the, this announcement leads to the kinds of events that the King of Jordan and others have suggested it might. Um, the safety and security of American citizens 
both our, our American citizens working for the US government, but of course our private American citizens throughout the world, the security of our installations, the safety of, of the thousands of troops that we have throughout the world, including in the region, are of paramount concern for this administration, um, and especially for Secretary Tillerson, uh, who starts all of his staff meetings with a, a focus on, on security. So this is something that we have been weighing very carefully. Uh, we have been meeting internally. We have been sending uh, messages out to our, our embassies and consulates throughout the world, asking them to think about these issues. Um, and of course, we're also talking to our partner governments uh, to make sure that we're doing everything possible to ensure the safety of our American citizens throughout the world. Do you know whether we have deployed, for example, additional Marine security guards or other uh, military or uh, you know, other protective assets uh, into areas that are likely to be affected should some of these concerns uh, uh, occur? Senator, I'd be happy to provide more information in a closed session. Okay. All right. That's fine. Uh, that's enough for my first round of questions. I may have more. Sure. We'll get back to you. Thanks so much. Sen uh, Senator Young actually got through the door before you did, Senator Did you really? So, uh... I'll turn off my light. <laughs> well, thank you, Chairman. I, this hearing, like so many others, underscores for me the importance of us once again uh, focusing on the need uh, for this committee to pass an authorization for the use of military force. Uh, as my colleagues know, I, I introduced legislation to that end back in March. I've, I've enjoyed working with many of my other colleagues who understand uh, the importance of, of this issue and have led on this issue and applaud the chairman's recent efforts uh, to uh, take up uh, this cause, and, and hopefully we can keep moving forward on that front. Uh, ambassadors, uh, the counterterrorism discussion often focuses on the kinetic element to the exclusion of other elements of, of that fight. Now, it's certainly true there are some terrorists who are irreconcilable and simply have to be taken off the battlefield through military means. But a comprehensive CT strategy has to be more of that, more than that. It's got to focus on capturing or killing today's uh, irreconcilable terrorists while also addressing sources, root causes of radicalization. Ambassadors, based on your current positions uh, and your lifetime of experience, what do you see as a connection between, on one hand, our international development efforts working with our partners, and on the other, the fight uh, against terrorists? Well, uh, Senator Young, thank you for the question. I think there's a very tight and, and close relationship between development that leads, toward, leads to well-established democratic institutions, uh, um, prosperous economies on the one hand, um, and counterterrorism successes on the other. Democracy is a great bulwark against terrorism, um, and efforts to build democracies that are open and transparent um, and responsive to their citizens and protective of basic civil rights are key counterterrorism tools. And, and the reason for that, I think, Senator, is because uh, democratic governments that provide their citizens a voice, an opportunity to be heard, falsify the false claim of terrorists that a resort to violence is necessary uh, to address one's concerns. Um, that is never the case, but it is, it is especially not the case in a democratic government. Um, and so I think that the, the broader suite of USG policies that seek to develop the economies of uh, countries around the world um, and to strengthen their commitment to democracy pay a number of dividends, not the least of which are counterterrorism dividends. 
Thank you. Ambassador Palaszczuk, could you also speak to this issue and uh, perhaps focus not just on our efforts to uh, nurture and promote democracy, but also maybe to, to more basic human needs, uh, hunger, medical attention, um, and, and economic development? Of course, um, yes, and this is something that, that we are trying to do, to take a holistic uh, approach at the, the drivers of uh, radicalization. And as Ambassador Sales said in his previous response, I think the context is different uh, from country to country, from individual to individual. Um, so I, we are trying to tailor our overall engagement in various countries to address what we see as the speci specific needs. So, for example, in Tunisia, um, there's a lot of focus not just on strengthening the capacity of the law enforcement and the security services, but also looking at what it's going to take to create employment so that the large numbers of very highly educated young people actually have good, satisfying jobs. Um, we've got the um, uh, Tunisian-American um, uh, Entrepreneurship Fund uh, that's creating small enterprises. There's a robust USAID program. We have, have of course, all of our MEPI programs that are focused on, on youth leadership and training. Um, in terms of the, the kind of basic humanitarian needs, um, as you know, a lot of countries in our region have higher levels of income, so we don't have a lot of USAID missions in the classic sense. Of course, we have programs in Morocco, we have program, programs in Egypt, Jordan, throughout the region, um, Libya and Yemen, things are focused more on the sort of transition. Humanitarian assistance is obviously a very, very key part of this for countries that are in conflict, and, and the U.S. has delivered hundreds of millions, in fact, billions of dollars of aid in recent years. Well, my sense, informed by some recent authoritative reports, is, is there's going to be an increasing need for our country to focus on this, working with other international partners. Um, there are two reports that recently came out. The first report was published just yesterday uh, by the World Food Program USA. It demonstrates the link between food insecurity and instability. And the second report, uh, was produced by the United Nations Development Program. It's entitled A Journey to Extremism in Africa. And this report highlights the link between uh, lack of development on one hand and, and violent extremism on the other. And with unanimous consent, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to introduce both of these reports in the record. And lastly, I'd, I'd, I'd just like to ask the ambassadors whether you've had a chance to review these reports. Uh, not yet, Senator, but we'll look forward to doing so. You as well. Likewise. All right. Thank you, ambassadors. Thank you, Senator Booker. Yeah, I have some questions, but just a quick follow-up. I mean, I mean, that's what worries me is that the budgets reflect priorities, and we seem to be focusing when it comes to uh, northern Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, far more on uh, our military expenditures, which are essential and necessary in the in the various uh, counterterrorism coalitions that we're in are are extraordinarily important. Um, but I do worry about seeing budgets being proposed from the administration that are slashing a lot of these critical programs that ultimately create an environment for stability um, where we're not allowing um, uh, folks to um, uh, go down that pathway towards, uh, towards um, uh, radicalization. In addition, uh, uh, our diplomatic resources um, uh, in Africa is something that we have uh, uh, concerns about it as well, and investments we're making in institution building and the like. And I'm wondering if you could just comment on that, because I, I um, Senator Young has made this point numerous times, and I just tend to agree with him, and, and, and actually growing more worried that we're relying on our military interventions 
uh, uh, with the thought that that might somehow not only solve the problem immediately, but deal with what I think are the longer-term causes of radicalization? Uh, it's a great question, Senator. I th thank you for raising it. Um, I think uh, Ambassador Palaszczuk and I um, and the entire State Department and administration would give you the same answer, and that is that the kinetic aspects of our counterterrorism strategy are important and vital, and so are various other non-kinetic aspects of our counterterrorism strategy, and, and that is why uh, we're here today to tell you about them. Let me, if I, if I could, just give you a couple examples of some of the things that we're doing in North Africa in the civilian space, in the border security, law enforcement, uh, in CVE space, uh, to round out the full suite of whole-of-government tools that we're using to address these threats, both short-term and long-term. So in, in places like Algeria, for instance, uh, we're partnering with local law enforcement to develop their ability to investigate terrorism-related crimes. We're working with judges to help them understand how to handle complex terrorism cases, how to deal with evidence, how to deal with witness protection and facility protection. Um, and we're also dealing, uh, we're also working uh, with uh, prison officials uh, to help them manage the very difficult issues that arise when you're trying to incarcerate and, a... And, and I I appreciate that, and maybe for QFR, I'd love to get the full detailing of being that I only have three minutes left. Um, I mean, specifically to his point about food aid, we're, we are cutting the, the the proposal coming to the administration is to cut the funding to the very programs that reports like this one show are necessary for us to create stability. Senator, if I, if I might jump in on that, I think. Um, there's some very interesting and positive developments in North Africa with respect to international cooperation, um, because this is a, a part of the world where the impact of the terrorism, of the migration flows, of the, the smuggling is felt very keenly by Europe. So actually, like I think Tunisia is a really good example, and, and Libya as well, where we ramped up our assistance very quickly. We've given huge sums of money to help strengthen Tunisian institutions to help them get through that initial period. And then the rest of the international community has come in to help pick up the slack and take on other projects. So, for example, there's a, a G7 um, initiative underway in which we're sharing the burden with our partners to help address all of these needs that, that you outlined. Um, Libya is also another very positive example where the United States is, is doing part of it, but the Europeans are also doing a very major part. So I, I think as we look at, at the realities of, of this administration's budget requests, um, something that, that we have done very, very effectively is to work with our international partners to make sure that we are looking holistically at the needs and to make sure that other partners are engaging in areas where we, we might not be able to engage as robustly as we have in the past. Okay, and I wish we had more time to... Uh, I, when you, when you mention Tunisia, I get worried about sort of their, uh, some of their corruption going on in their government, problematic things like their administrative reconciliation law, which gives sort of blanket immunity for civil servants. And, and these are obviously other things that create counterterrorism. But I, I just want to, in my remaining moments, just ask about uh, the human trafficking uh, problem. I'm sure you all uh, saw the CNN videos that were released um, with what is to me a heartbreaking uh, evidence of modern day slavery, of the trafficking uh, going through um, uh, from areas that my subcommittee uh, covers, uh, which uh, there's a lot of evidence that these uh, human trafficking, uh, in fact, the EU reports says that the decrease registered in, 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 uh, in migrants does not necessarily translate into a one-to-one -one reduction because the overall flow as new routes are, are, are going. This is happening, the flow of um, human trafficking, the modern-day slavery. This is something I know weighs on your, your hearts and anybody who's aware of the degree of it, uh, desperate people who are fleeing, seeking opportunities, ending up being sold into slavery. 
Uh, it is unconscionable, it's unacceptable. Uh, it should, uh, it, it should in, in, enrage uh, this nation uh, and we should be doing something about it. So in the, in the remaining moments, could you uh, maybe let me know um, what the U.S. is doing uh, to try to help address the situation? What kind of humanitarian aid, uh, migration-related assistance, uh, how we're cooperating with our allies in the region and, uh, and specific, specifically with the EU? Um, and uh, and has the uh, State Department considered doing things to hold the perpetrators of these abuses accountable, including sanctions under uh, the Magnitsky Act uh, or other authorities? Mm -hmm. um, we share 100% your concerns about this horrifying situation. Um, and uh, Libyan Prime Minister Siraj was just in Washington last week. That certainly was a topic of discussion. The Security Council met recently to talk about this, and the United States expressed its, its deep concern over this. Um, on the humanitarian front, we've been engaged in um, supporting migrants, providing humanitarian assistance since the very early days of the revolution back in 2011. This is unfortunately is not a new development in Libya. Um, so we continue to be very, very engaged working with, with IOM and others to make sure that the people caught up in these horrific uh, crimes get the care and assistance that they need. Um, with respect to trying to get a handle on it, I think this comes back to many of the issues that Ambassador Sales was talking about, um, making sure that there are the appropriate border controls, but it also comes back to the root causes, as the senators also identified, you know, the people who are coming from these, these countries elsewhere in the continent whose lives are so desperate that they're willing to make that journey across the Sahara, clearly something needs to be done so that, that they have prospects in their own country. So it's a multifaceted approach. It's something that we're looking very carefully at, and we coordinate very closely with our colleagues in the African Affairs Bureau to make sure that we're looking at this in a very holistic way. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Booker. Senator Johnson. Hey, Mr. Chairman, I want to thank the witnesses for your testimony and your service to your country. Uh, in the committee that I chair, Homeland Security Governmental Affairs, we have an annual threat hearing. And two years ago, FBI Director Comey testified or predicted that as we tighten the noose around ISIS in, in Syria, Iraq and Syria at that point in time, we were going to see a diaspora, a spreading of uh, foreign fighters into other regions. Uh, this year, FBI Director Ray and some of the other witnesses, uh, NCTC Director Rasmussen, had a, a more encouraging testimony saying that we're really seeing those fighters stay there and, and die in Raqqa. Uh, although we have heard reports of fighters leaving Raqqa, Today we had a hearing on this evolving fight. You know, let's face it, there's, there's a new phase now as we've denied them the territory, but we've not denied them the, the cyber caliphate. Uh, but it was actually pretty encouraging saying that uh, because Turkey has shut down the migrant flow, it's actually quite difficult for ISIS foreign fighters to leave that war zone, leave Syria. I'm just, because we do not have a representative from the Department of State, I just want to ask the ambassador and the secretary, do you agree with that assessment? Are, are they pretty well trapped in that war zone? Ambassador Sales. Well, thanks for the question, Senator Johnson. I, I think the situation today is a lot better than it was in 2014. Um, there are much stricter border controls in place today to monitor and prevent the movement of foreign terrorist fighters across international borders. Um, that is not to say, however, that the threat has gone away. I think the threat has simply changed. So um, as you know, the Paris attacks in two years ago, in November of 2015, were carried out uh, by foreign terrorist fighters who'd gone to the war zone and then come home. Um, we're still seeing terrorist attacks uh, today in Europe, in the United States, most recently 
recently in New York City on Halloween uh, by people who haven't traveled to the war zone, but rather are inspired by the radical ideology and message of hate um, that ISIS uh, uh, perpetuates. Um, ISIS is very savvy when it comes to using social media as a megaphone uh, to, to broadcast their message. And they're able to reach uh, people who have no capacity to travel to the war zone. That, that's one of the concerns, Senator, that I think we need to focus on. And I understand closely. that, but I'm asking specifically about those foreign fighters being able to escape that war zone. And two years ago, we had the migrant flow through Turkey. We've clamped down on that. Are there other escape avenues? And I'll ask Secretary Plotchik, and by the way, that sounds like a very Wisconsin type of name. <laughs> so. <laughs> Correct, Senator? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Senator, I actually grew up here in Alexandria, Virginia, but my family's from northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, so, yes, in terms of the, the other routes, um, as Ambassador Sales said, the, the uh, Turks and others have really clamped down, but no system is infallible. I think what is positive since that, uh, the, the hearing that you referenced is the actions that we've taken in Libya. Um, you know, and we, we've had a very good counterterrorism partner in Prime Minister Siraj and the, the GNA. So we have very effectively, with the Libyans, degraded ISIS's uh, capacity in, um, in Libya, uh, you know, CERT and then the follow-on strikes in other desert camps. So I think the scenario that I was very worried about when I was sitting as the U.S. ambassador in Algeria, that it would we'd squeeze uh, ISIS corporate headquarters and they'd pop out in North Africa, actually hasn't happened. Um, I know from, from speaking with the Algerians who follow these issues very, very closely, they're concerned then about the follow-on effect into the Sahel, um, a region which uh, is outside of my particular area of, of expertise within the State Department, but um, as Ambassador Sales and, and others you know, have pointed out, um, a region with, with weak institutions, uh, a limited capacity. So I think one of the very positive things that the uh, administration is doing is working with the stronger partners in North Africa to help build the capacity of the weaker Sahel states. Morocco, as I mentioned in my opening statement, has been doing great work. Algeria does as well, and I think this is something that we can really continue to do um, because these, these states share the same vision that we have in terms of the need for uh, security, stability, and um, those kinds of economic reforms well, as well. You might have answered my, my final question here. In a full committee hearing, uh, Chairman Corker pointed out that there are 19 different nations that the Defense Department is operating in to try and prevent the spread of terrorism. Uh, obviously, history t shows us that we have failed states like, like Afghanistan. Uh, if, if we allow those to continue to fester, uh, terrorism build like we allowed ISIS to rise from the ashes of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, one of our top priorities, I would imagine, of this administration would be to prevent that from happening. In your regions that you're responsible for, which, which is or which are the, the nations most at risk for be, being that failed state that that type of a terrorist activity could, could blossom in? Well, Senator, it, it, it's difficult to, to say who's at the top of the list or who's at the bottom of the list. I, I would say that all countries have their challenges. And, and let me explain in a bit more detail, mindful of the time, um, what we're doing to help them meet those challenges. Um, it's essential that these sometimes fragile states develop reliable and strong and capable institutions to deliver basic government services, such as law enforcement, such as criminal justice, such as border security. Um, 
these kinds of capabilities that we enjoy in the United States and in much of the developed world um, are useful tools in the counterterrorism toolkit. But I would go one step further um, and say that in building CT capabilities in these areas, we also help these countries address some of the concerns that Senator Booker uh, 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 poignantly raised a moment ago. Um, a state that is capable of preventing a terrorist from coming across its border is also capable of preventing a human trafficker from coming across its border. Uh, a state that has courts that are capable of adjudicating terrorism-related crimes uh, also has courts that are capable of adjudicating human trafficking-related crimes. Um, so the CT investments that we're making pay a number of dividends, not just in the CT space, but across the board, I think. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, both of you would like to ask uh, some more questions, all right? Why, uh, why don't we take a, a short recess so we can go down and vote uh, on come the right end of this one at the beginning of the next one, then we can come back in a few more minutes. Yes, that would be great. Is all right with you? Uh, with that, we'll, uh, uh, we'll, we'll be in recess until uh, we get back. We'll come back to order again. I see we've uh, lost the onlookers, but uh, we got the important people here, which is a good thing. Apologize for that, but it takes the, the, uh, the wheels of justice turn slowly on the floor of the Senate, slower than most places. Thank you again for coming, and thank you so much uh, for your input. Uh, Senator Young, you had uh, some follow-up. Uh. Well, I want to thank the ambassadors again for their presence here today. Um, I'd like to turn to discussing the importance of cyber terrorism in our fight against uh, uh, our, our cyber uh, warfare, that is, in, in, in fighting against uh, terrorism. Um, would you agree, first of all, that our, our nation's uh, cyber activities are increasingly important as, as we carry out the fight against ISIS, uh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and other uh, terrorist actors? Absolutely, Senator. Okay. Um, do you have any thoughts related to policy, uh, funding, or, or other legislative initiatives that uh, we need to be embarking on to improve our cyber capabilities? Well, um Senator, that's a, that's a very big question, um, and I, I don't think um, I'm prepared to answer it in its entirety. So let me, let me answer a couple of smaller pieces, specific facets of, of that question um, as best I can today. Um, and we're happy to come back and discuss it. It, it is a broad question. Of course, I want you to focus narrowly on the counterterrorism context, right. please. Well, I, I, think, I think one of the vulnerabilities that we face is um, that the shady figures who are willing to sell on the dark web um, exploits that are capable of taking advantage of vulnerabilities in commonly used software products, um, they have insufficient scruples to prevent them from selling to rogue states. Um, they sell to organized crime. Um, and my concern is that they would also be willing to sell uh, these sorts of cyber weapons to terrorist organizations. Um, I am not aware of any intelligence indicating that that is in fact happening, um, but it's a risk that I think um, is, is, is a risk that we should take seriously and, and think about addressing. I, just days ago, I, I visited Fort Meade, Army's uh, Cyber Command, uh, specifically 780th Military Intelligence Brigade Task Force ECHO. I want to gain more information about uh, DOD cyber activities as they relate to counterterrorism. And I had the pleasure of, of visiting with members of the Indiana National Guard who are part of this unit and learning more uh, about their work. And, and so um, I, I just wanted to uh, let 
people will publicly know that I'm proud of their activities. And as things come up, I hope you'll let this committee know and uh, our office uh, about things we ought to be doing here on the Hill uh, to further their efforts and others who are involved in this fight. I'd like to turn uh, to another technology issue, and it's uh, ISR. In testimony before the Senate Armed Services Committee on March, on March 9th of this year, General Waldhauser, who's commander of AFRICOM, stated that only approximately 20 to 30 percent of AFRICOM's ISR requirements are met. On October 30, I asked Secretary Mattis about this ISR shortfall, and he said General Waldhauser was 100 percent correct. Secretary Mattis said all geographic combatant commands suffer from an ISR shortfall. The secretary said, quote, there's a finite amount of ISR assets and we deal them out like gold coins to the various commands. Ambassador Sales, as the coordinator for counterterrorism, do you agree with the assessments of General Waldhauser and Secretary of Defense Mattis regarding this shortfall? Well, Senator, I certainly am not in a position to, to second-guess military experts on, uh, on what their operational needs entail for, uh, in light of their uh, hardware uh, capabilities. So the implications, as I understand it, are um, pretty severe, right? Uh, so it, uh, this will uh, play a, an adverse, uh, deal an adverse sort of blow to uh, our situational awareness, our support of operations, and... Uh, It'll, it'll prevent us from getting early notice about various threats. Um, I, I have no doubt that our mil members of the military and others involved in these efforts are doing the best they can with limited resources. But despite these efforts, uh, can you provide any additional detail on, on operationally how the lack of ISR has impacted our efforts in North Africa? Well, Senator, um, it, it's a great question, um, and I, I defer to the Pentagon um, because it is, it is DOD uh, that determines what their operational requirements are, um, and they operate the assets that are designed to advance those operational needs. Um, so I, I defer to them, sir. Okay, as, as, uh, as a diplomat, uh, you work with other countries, our NATO allies quite a bit. Has there been uh, conversations with them about how they might help uh, augment our resources in this area? Well, um, Senator, one of the most important commitments that President Trump has asked our allies to make in NATO, but, but elsewhere as well, um, is to share a greater portion of the burden of our mutual self-defense. We're constantly talking with NATO allies and other allies about what we can do, what they can do to contribute more to our, to our shared efforts. Um, and I suspect that ISR would be no exception to that. You're not aware of any specific conversations about North Africa and the needs there? I, I've, not, dialogue with the, uh, I've not participated in, in any such conversations, but perhaps Ambassador Palaszczuk could elaborate. Senator, I think that we could probably have a, um, a good discussion in a closed session about some of these issues um, because, uh, you know, there is a good counterterrorism cooperation with a number of our partners in the region, um, but I, I, we'd have to do that in a closed along, session. Along with the embassy security stuff. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Keene. Thank you. Um, as I think about counterterrorism challenges in North Africa and more generally, one of the issues that I'm very troubled about is what I think is now sort of a permanent problem of migrants and refugees. Um, I, have a, I have a very different thought than the president does about what to do about it, but I actually think he's right that this refugee crisis at any point in time, tens of millions of people as refugees or migrants, it does raise concerns about 
terrorists sneaking over borders. And it raises all kinds of other concerns. Um, even well-meaning people seeking a refugee status moving into a country like Jordan that doesn't have many resources of water, for example, can create all kinds of instability in, in Jordan. Or refugees from Syria that go into Lebanon when there's not enough of a school system for the Lebanese kids can create all kinds of challenges. So terrorism, instability, um, there are major, major issues that refugee and migrant populations create. And frankly, I think we're used to thinking of refugee and migrant issues as sort of episodic, but I think we frankly have to view them as sort of normal and likely to be somewhat permanent based on weather emergencies, violence, civil war, corruption, all kinds of issues drive this. You're the first State Department witnesses I've had before me since this happened, so you get the benefit of being asked the question, but I was stunned when the Trump administration announced on Saturday, Friday or Saturday that they were pulling out of the global dialogue on refugee issues in Mexico this week. Every nation in the UN General Assembly voted on a non-binding compact in September of 2016. It's even called the New York Compact to basically say this refugee issue is getting out of hand and we ought to come up with best practices to deal with it. The nations of the world were gathering in Mexico this week to talk about what are new best practices for dealing with migrants and refugees. A principles meeting was, was called by the administration last week to try to decide what to do about the compact and about the meeting this week. My own investigation as to what happened suggested that going into that meeting, the State Department, the Department of Defense, the CIA Director Pompeo, and the UN Ambassador Haley all believed that the U.S. should participate, that solving this problem was more likely to happen in an effective way if the U.S. was at the table rather than not. But my own discussions with people who were there suggested that others, the chief of staff at the White House, this White House advisor Steve Miller and the attorney general said, no, we should pull out of even having a dialogue with other nations about refugee and reporting from folks in the meeting was that the reason advanced was, you know, this was an issue that was part of the Obama administration and we shouldn't stay with it. Given your brief, both of you, in working on counterterrorism issues, do you think that we will be able to better deal with those issues if the U.S. is absent from a global dialogue about the extent of the problem and, and how we should handle it? Or do you think we're more likely to come up with good answers to this problem if the U.S. is at the table? Um, well, Senator, I'm, I, I can't speak specifically to uh, the decision about the IOM, but what I can tell you is that regardless of what multilateral fora the United States is engaged in, we are constantly undertaking robust bilateral dialogues uh, with, with other countries um, that face the same problems and sh share the same values as us. And that is, that is especially true when it comes to the movement of persons uh, related to the foreign terrorist fighter phenomenon. So we are constantly having conversations with countries um, in the middle Middle East um, that can be transit countries for the movement of persons, uh, legitimate refugees who need our assistance, but also terrorists who might seek to exploit our hospitality. Uh, we're, we're working with and dialoguing with countries in, that, that are sources of foreign terrorist fighters, including in North Africa. And we're also in conversations with countries that could be the targets of attacks uh, mounted by foreign fighters who have tried to exploit refugee flows in Europe and, and elsewhere around the world. Um, so I, I would just caution that um, the United States, whatever the United States engagement is in certain multilateral institutions, 
there are other conversations that are taking place, very robust conversations that are taking place to, to address these matters of global concern. And I understand that, but, but would either of you care to offer a defense for why the United States should not be participating in this global compact that we, we agreed to support less than a year and a half ago? Uh, Senator, from uh, the Bureau of Near, Near Eastern Affairs perspective, we'd have to take that question for the record. Uh, I'm not, I, I haven't been following mm -hmm. the issue myself personally. Mm -hmm. That's fair. Um, likewise. We'll, we'll, we'll ask it for the record then. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Done. Thank you, Senator. Um, I'm, I have some questions, but given the lateness of the hour, I'm going to submit them for the record. Uh, and uh, uh, thank you so much uh, for being here. Thank you for your service. Uh, uh, we do a number of these hearings, and I have to tell you that your uh, your focus and your your command of these issues is uh, impressive, and we we sincerely appreciate that. Anything else for the good of the order? If not, we are adjourned. <laughs>